Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful that death has been arrested when Christ rose. We praise you that our shame was bore, our guilt was dealt with at the cross. We thank you for these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Little ones, before you sit down, I invite you to run to the back. And also, uh, this morning's sermon is going to be from Proverbs chapter 5. And if you have read that before, you know we'll probably uh, walk through some dicey things. So if there are other kids that are either in upper elementary or even in middle school that maybe parents, you don't want to hear them about some adult things, uh, they can go to our upper kids class this morning and they'll be taught the gospel there. So, Netflix, Amazon, Twitter. Think about how many people visit each one of these every month. And what if I told you that more people visit adult sites than all those combined every month. A couple of years ago, that's what statistics told us. Estimates are that 30% of all internet traffic is related to the illicit sex industry. And it's not just men. And it's not just outside the church. It's men and women inside the church. A recent survey says 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women regularly consume illicit media online. That means in a church, roughly with our demographics, Restoration Church, 30 men and 15 women struggle with some type of internet pornography. And the internet just provides one form of giving in to our lusts. We can pursue romantic immorality virtually online or physically in the bedroom, mentally with gazing looks or emotionally fantasizing with unchecked feelings. None of us are immune from the dangers of sexual immorality. And none of us are cut off from the delights of sexual faithfulness. Now some of you are probably already blushing or a bit uncomfortable. This is your first time, welcome. (laughs) We don't preach on this every week, but as the Lord would have it, today we are. And as a father of two girls and as a pastor of a church, I am all for discretion and wisdom in talking about this subject, but what the one thing we can't do is avoid it or gloss over it because the Bible doesn't. And so this morning... We're going to talk about it from God's Word, from Proverbs chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and turn there, Proverbs 5. It's going to be about halfway through your Bible. Proverbs is a book filled with practical wisdom, that is applying truth to our lives. Most of it is written as a father addressing a son to choose the path of wisdom that he might live a godly life of God-honoring success. So let's read Proverbs 5 together. My son, be attentive 
to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I met the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern and flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. It's God's word. So Proverbs chapter 5, here's the main idea. Treating sex as God intends satisfies more than lust ever gives. Treating sex as God intends satisfies more than lust ever gives. We're going to unpack that statement by looking at the dangers of lust and the delights of sex. Before we do, I want to set a foundation for us. Look again at verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Our ways are before God, which means this. His ways are not before us. God is the authority determining right and wrong. He is the creator, and as the creator, he has a purpose for all things of his creation. He has rules and order. And the good news is his rules are not just a random moral code to whack us when we get out of line. As Kyle preached last week from Psalm 119, no, God's rules lead us into the fullness of delight, the fullness of joy. So, but some might say, no, 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 Joe, you don't understand. True freedom, true joy is when I do what I want. The Bible's nothing but a straitjacket. Well, imagine, if you will, a train. hundred cars long, stacked with tons and tons of freight, 
huge steel wheels rolling down a track with little friction. And some well-meaning person comes along and says, how cruel and narrow-minded to restrict this train with all that mass and power to this little track. Let's liberate it. How free is that train off the track? See, you don't liberate a train by taking away its guiding forces. If you do that, it becomes stuck and frustrated. The train has greatest freedom on the tracks. And God has designed the tracks on which we were meant to run. True freedom is we we, we live in God's world according to God's word. True freedom is found not, not in the absence of all rules and limitations, but in the presence of the right ones. That's where true freedom is found. And so living according to our own rules with no restrictions leads us to, to what verse 22 and 23 says. It says we're ensnared or held fast to the cord of our sin and to death. God's word graciously tells us how to live not to quench our joy but to complete it. This is what we saw in the book of Philippians. And so it's not up to us to define sex or determine how it's used. God created it, and he came up with it, and he created it for a purpose. So God did not look down on the Garden of Eden and say, oh my, what are Adam and Eve doing? I had no idea they were going to do that. That is so disgusting. Where did they get that idea? He didn't do that. No. He received glory as two image bearers engaged in intercourse expressing the covenant sign of marriage. This is what sex is. It's the sign of the marriage covenant making visible the invisible reality of the one flesh union between a man and a woman. And this It doesn't end there. This is huge. It points to the self-giving, exclusive, permanent, covenant union of Christ and the church. There's a purpose. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6. So, relating to someone intimately in this way that you're not married to, is wrong not because of some random rule. It's wrong because it doesn't image Christ. And you were created to image Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus Christ reserves himself exclusively and permanently by giving all of himself to his bride, the church, so too we are to reserve ourselves exclusively and permanently giving all of ourselves to our spouse, should God provide one. So we must remember before anything else, before anything else, sex is a divine illustration showcasing the nature of God and the glory of the gospel. It points to Jesus Christ's covenant with his bride, the church. It's not just a selfish pleasure that we get to indulge in. And so it's fundamental that we start there. And now that we understand the why, of this type of intimacy, we can look at the danger of lust and the delights of sex. First, the danger. 
Lust leads to shallow satisfaction and regret. That's the danger. Look again at verses 3 and 4. For the lips of, the for, of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, the forbidden woman here is a bit poetic. It's not just talking about women, women and men, and it's not just talking about physical things. It's talking about anything that's contrary to the Bible's understanding purpose of sex. Adultery, fornication, pornography, impure thoughts, illicit fantasies, lustful self-gratification, homosexual behavior. All of these are distortion of God's good design. And essentially, they can be captured under the heading lust. Craving sexually what God has forbidden. And remember, this is not gender specific. Too often, too often this is couched just for men. That's not the case. It's men and women. Both view erotic media. Both desire the attention of others and dress seductively to get it. Both men and women crave what is forbidden. None of us here this morning are immune. Not me and not you. None of us are immune to the tempting dangers of lust. Let me make a brief note about a couple of these items on that list. Probably a couple of them caught your attention. Self-gratification and homosexual behavior. I don't necessarily talk about these because I want to, but because the first is rarely ever mentioned and the second is carelessly addressed. I want to try to avoid both errors. So first, some of you might be asking, is self-stimulation and self-gratification sinful? You know, you may have been, even been told that if you occasionally satisfy your own desires on yourself, by yourself, for yourself, it'll keep everything in check. Is this okay? Well, I think we have to say the Bible doesn't explicitly say not to. But, if we're honest, I think this almost always, or always, results from lust. And if that's the case, then it is explicitly forbidden by God's Word. And we also, if we're honest, giving in to these types of desires doesn't satisfy anything. It only intensifies them all the more. And then, if we remember back to the purpose of intimacy is to bind a husband and wife together as they selflessly give themselves to each other, what does this do? Self-stimulation and self-gratification teach this is all about me. It is not self-giving. It is selfish. Sexual intimacy is meant to be intimate with your spouse, not anonymous on yourself. Intimacy is meant to be intimate with your spouse, not anonymous on yourself. And what about... Homosexual behavior. Again, 
I bring this up because it's a hot-button issue in our culture. And I bring it up because too often, people who take the name of Christ speak arrogantly or cowardly with signs or short, dumb blog posts or Facebook status updates, and it does no good. We have to talk about this issue with convictional kindness, not arrogant stupidity. So a couple of things. Notice that it's not the only thing I mentioned. The young woman who looks at pornography and the husband committing adultery is caught in the snares of sin, just like the person engaged in homosexual behavior. Brothers and sisters, refuse the trap of isolating this one issue. When I'm asked, people find out I'm a pastor, and just because this is the kind of the, the topic du jour, they'll ask, so what's your church's stance on homosexuality? And I'll typically answer something like this. Before a restoration church is against anything, we are for someone. We are for Jesus. And we are for all types of sects that point to the covenant union of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. You want to hear more about the good news? Because anything I say is not going to make sense apart from the gospel. Don't start with sin. Start with Jesus. The Bible is not fixated on homosexuality. It's focused on Christ. Let's be known for who we are for. Not something we're against. And also notice that I've explicitly said homosexual behavior. There is a difference, brothers and sisters, friends, between homosexual attraction and homosexual action. Do not conflate the two. It's careless and it's unloving. Just because you have an attraction towards someone of the same sex does not mean you are sinning. It depends on what you do with that attraction. Temptation alone is not sin. Personalizing and pursuing it is. Just like me. If I crave and scheme and fantasize about having sex with someone I'm not married to, it's sin. So it is here. So it is here. The Bible tells us explicitly that homosexual behavior is wrong. But notice how it does it. 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived, neither sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, it's listed, and we need to take note of that. But again, God's word, which is for our good, forbids this behavior not because of some arbitrary, hateful rule, but because it distorts the gospel. That's why. Like all sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman distorts the gospel. 
That's why. And so if you're here this morning and you have attractions towards someone of the same sex, I praise God that you are here. I'm thankful you're here, and I hope you come back every single week. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, you are welcome here. Guess what? You are in a group with men and women who are broken sexually. All of us battle some type of lust. We're thankful that you're here with us. But what we can't say, what we can't say, is we're all sinners, so my sin is okay. Christianity tells us we're all sinners. That's not the, that's not the, the hinge. The hinge is repentance. What are we repenting of? That's the question. We can't say our sin is okay, even if the culture does. So the father is warning his son about the forbidden woman and the dangers of lust. Why? Because it leads to shallow satisfaction. Did you notice what he said about the forbidden woman? She's enticing. Her lips are sweet. She's smooth. She's a smooth talker. She'll make you feel good about yourself. Isn't this why people give in to lust? Because it's sweet. It doesn't do any good to pretend that it's not enticing. It is enticing. But notice, it's shallow. It's counterfeit. It drips honey, but ends up being bitter. It's smooth, but ends up being sharp. Lust does not provide what it promises. One of Satan's greatest devices is to present the bait and hide the hook. Think of lust as a chocolate-baited hook. It looks desirable, and yes, it will even taste delicious for a moment. But soon, the pleasure gives way to pain. Keep this in mind, brothers and sisters. Lust is bittersweet. From the outside, all you see is the sweetness, the pleasure, the profit. And on the inside, hides the bitterness, shame, guilt, and misery. Envision the end of your sin. Walk down the path of sexual immorality, and see where it leads you. Imagine how the name of Christ will be mocked because you're too ashamed to speak of Him. Feel the lump form in your throat as you sit down and tell your spouse that you've broken the marriage covenant by looking at pornography. Feel the destruction of shattered trust. Listen to the sound of your children's precious voices. Mommy's home. Daddy's home. Why are you fighting? What's wrong? Think about your premarital counseling. Having to reveal your past to your future spouse. Feel the hurt. See the confusion. Think about feelings of guilt and shame hindering your service to the church. Do you ever think about that? How your lust hinders your service to God's bride, the church? Picture yourself sitting at home when you know community groups happen. You're sitting on the couch by yourself because you don't want to talk to anybody else. 
envision the end of your sin. See, Satan doesn't tell you true cost because the cost is too high. He presents the bait and he hides the hook. It damages you and it damages those around you. Don't get lost on that. This is not just about you. It's about the collateral damage. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose its consequences. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose its consequences. Lust, the sweetness of lust, like the sweetness of chocolate, dissolves quickly. It leaves bitterness of regret. That's what we see in verses 5 through 14. Lust leads to regret. The father warns his son of the forbidden woman, wanders aimlessly in moral darkness. Her feet travel the path of death that is away from God, not to God. Do you see it? Pursuing sexual morality and pursuing God are mutually exclusive. Instead of loving God with all that you, he has given you, Giving into lust will lead you to squander all the good as God, God has given you. That's what he's talking about in verses 9 through 14. It robs you of your honor. Causes you to give your years away. Or in other words, Joey's translation, waste your life. Verse 10, strangers take advantage of you. Those who care nothing about you have power over you and rule you. Verse 11, 12 and 13, a life filled with lust is filled with regret. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Notice the total effect, the flesh and the body. Entirety, it affects every bit of who you are. So in verse 14, he concludes, I'm at the brink of utter ruin. So you can picture this young man looking back on the lustful choices he has made and he says, if only I'd love discipline. If only I had pursued reproof. If only I had listened to God's word and to those speaking God's word to me. If only I had done these things, I would not be filled with deep, soul-consuming regret. Heed the danger. Lust leads to shallow satisfaction and regret. But here's the reality. I wandered down this road. And many of you probably have as well. We've had sex with people we're not married to. Others haven't done this necessarily physically, but virtually consuming pornography or playing illicit fantasies out in our mind. To one degree or another, all of us, all of us, all of us are sexually broken. So are we just to wallow in our regret? Is that my message this morning? No. Remember that verse I quoted from Corinthians earlier? Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor slenders will inherit the kingdom of God. Guess what? God's word doesn't stop there. It goes on. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. This is good news. That in Christ Jesus, we are washed clean from the stain of sin. We are sanctified, set apart as holy. We are justified being declared righteous in God's sight. Not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus Christ has already perfectly done. He lived a perfect life. Sexually perfect and perfect in every other way. And on the cross, he died rejected by the world, smitten by God. But he did not stay dead. Death was arrested. Shame was obliterated. Satan was defeated. And he came forth with forgiveness and freedom and hope and healing for all those who trust in him. Yes, brother, sister, when you trust in Christ, His righteousness, did you think about this? His sexual righteousness is yours. No matter how deviant your past, no matter the weight of your brokenness right now, some of that weight is because of what you've done. Some of the weight is because of what's been done to you. None of that has to define you. By God's glorious grace and mercy, we do not have to live under the guilt and the shame and the disgrace of sexual sins committed or committed against us. There is hope and there is healing. Turn to Christ. If you've never done that, will you take the invitation this morning to confess those sins, to bring Him those hurts? Say, Christ, You are my hope. You are my healing. You are my righteousness. Brothers and sisters, Remember who you are in Christ. Yes, we are sorry for our past sins. Yes, we are deeply wounded by those sins against us, especially these of the intimate nature. But you don't have to be defined by them. That's the good news. Jesus took your guilt and shame and hurt that you might have grace and spotlessness and hope. He's not sorry that he saved you. He delights in you. He loves you. Now, because of who you are and whose you are, and by the power of the Spirit and the truth of the gospel, fight with every fiber of your being to let your righteousness model who you are in Christ. And as it comes to sexual purity, we see some practical advice in verses 7 and 8. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. You see, the father tells the son two things. Listen to me, stay away from her. Listen to me, stay away from her. There's good two pieces of advice. Listen to those that are going to speak God's word to you, and stay away as far as you can from immorality. So first, if you're going to successfully battle lust and you have to be meaningfully connected to others, 
We need, a, we need fellow church members to speak wisdom into our lives. The Christian life, including fighting against sexual sin, is something we do by locking arms together. We need each other, and we have to be open, and we have to be vulnerable. So if you're struggling with some type of sin, I don't, this is going to apply to any sin, but Proverbs 5 type of sin, tell someone. Tell someone in your community group. Come find one of the elders. Come find a trusted brother or sister and tell them, you're not alone. So secret sin is like walking around the gym drinking salt water from a sports bottle. On the outside, it looks like you're taking care of yourself and everything's okay. And on the inside, all you're doing is shriveling up. Secret sin does not fix itself. It just consumes you from the inside out. Realize you're not alone. Do not pretend. Do not pretend. Be open and vulnerable. This allows you to minister to others and others to you. This is what the church does. We walk alongside of one another. And second, keep your distance. Glance over to Proverbs 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 27. This again is in the context of lust. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? As the saying goes, if you play with fire, you're going to get burnt. Do you know that's biblical? There you go. <laughs> be aware of where you're weak. And make plans to stay as far away as you can. Make, make no provision to satisfy the lustful desires. Here are some questions to consider. When are you most susceptible, susceptible to give in to lust? At the end of the day, when you're tired or stressed? When you're home by yourself? What can you do to prepare for those times? Are there certain places where you're highly tempted? Where you can see others immodestly dressed, or whether you can be with your boyfriend or girlfriend alone. How can you limit your time in those places? What media entices you? Magazines, even seemingly innocent magazines with provocative ads. So, confession I get ESPN magazine. I read it. There's one issue every year that goes straight in the trash. It's called the body issue. I don't even, it just goes in the trash. I get another magazine. When it comes to the mail, the first thing I do is I give it to my wife, and I say, if there's any ads in here that are provocative, tear them out. And she tears them out for me. I do not want to get burnt by playing with fire. Television. Are there shows you watch with innuendos that just aren't helpful? Facebook, Instagram, those pictures you see, what are they doing to you? Your devices. Maybe you need a flip phone. It's true, right? And if you don't want to go there, make your smartphone dumb. There are ways to do that. You can lock it down so you can't access stuff. Don't leave a computer in your bedroom. Parents, parents, Pay attention to what your children are watching on devices. The battle against lust is not won in the moment of temptation, but in the heart long before it comes. Temptation is sudden. Sin is not. In moments of strength, make decisions that will serve you in times of weakness. 
So lust leads to shallow satisfaction and regret. So we need strong gospel community and we need to strategically minimize our exposure. But that's not the best way. Those are helpful. But that's not the best way. So imagine your mind is a room and lust is darkness. There are two ways you can deal with that darkness in your mind. You can try to press your hands up against the door and say no, and when it does enter in, just yell at it, no, no, no. Or you can fill the room with light. When light is there, there is no room for darkness. And as we quote often, quote, we must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasure and the conflagration of holy satisfaction. That's right. The best way to fight lust is not by saying no to lust, to bad things. It's by saying yes to the best things, to Christ, to treating sex as God intends. This is the delight. The delight, treating sex as God intends, leads to a superior satisfaction in Christ. That's what verses 15 through 20 are about. So they they begin to point us in the direction of biblical sex. So verse 15 Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Do you notice how many times exclusivity is referenced here? Own cistern, own well, be for yourself alone, not for strangers. And we know this is in the context of marriage because in verse 19 he references the wife. So biblical sex is exclusive between a man and a wife in the context of marriage. And remember, this is exclusive because the effects are permanent. Remember the why. God created the physical and emotional union of marital intimacy to point to a greater reality, the spiritual union that exists between Christ and the church. So this type of intimacy is God's appointed way for a husband and wife to display Christ's covenant by saying what Jesus says. I give myself completely and exclusively and permanently to you. Sex apart from marriage says, I will gladly take from you, but I'm not giving you myself. That's the opposite of the gospel. And now do you see how this informs other times of immorality as well? Do you see how it informs that? So it's not just the the thing that happens in the bed between us. Like, no, it informs all types of immorality, not just physical intercourse. So unless you're giving yourself fully to your spouse in the context of marriage, you are making a mockery of God's good design for sex. This is why it's wrong. It's like taking a permanent act of giving and it treats it as though a selfish act of taking. So it's like superglue. What does superglue do? It sticks things together really well. And if you mess up, it's really hard to get them apart. And as you try, no matter how careful you are, damage results. But when used rightly, It works really, really good. So it is with the sign of the marriage covenant. 
So the exclusivity of physical intercourse does not come from a prudish God looking to kill our joy. It comes from a God who gives himself to us, gives himself to us in Christ that he might complete our joy. So it's exclusive. The second thing we see is it's pleasurable. Verses 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Get physically drunk on your spouse. Have fun with her body. This is evocative language, poetic imagery. This is much, much better than the cheap, counterfeit satisfaction, the shallow of lust. We had an elder who used to say it's like comparing watered-down Kool-Aid to fine-aged wine. There's just no comparison. Treating sex as God intends leads to a superior satisfaction in Christ. No, and it's not just to be tolerated, but celebrated. Notice what it says. At all times, always. Not just when you're young, not just when you're not tired, not just when the romance is thick. Biblically speaking, husbands and wives should make love regularly all to the glory of God in Christ. Amen? If this describes your marriage, praise God. Don't take it for granted. Pursue it all the more. Help others. And remember, it's never an end in itself. It points to someone greater. It points to Christ. The pleasure you have now pales in comparison to what is to come. Imagine that. That's crazy to think about good how when Christ comes back. If it doesn't describe the intimacy in your marriage, realize that sex is one of God's good gifts. We shouldn't purposefully neglect His gifts to us. Yes, there are legitimate reasons and struggles and barriers that can impact marital intimacy. They can be physical, they can be emotional, relational, and medical. And these require wisdom and and patience. But there can also be sinful reasons that require repentance and moving toward your spouse. Whatever the case is, don't believe you're alone. Yes, it might be uncomfortable. Remember, silence is one of Satan's greatest weapons. Talk to someone. Come find me. If I can't help appropriately, we'll find people that will. Now, many of you are not married. And you're sitting here thinking... Joe, are you serious? You just told me how great sex was in marriage, but right before that you told me it was only for marriage. Thank you for dangling that carrot right before my face. Well, I'm sorry. Let's pray and go home. Just kidding. (laughs) I think I need to answer a question for you. And it's this. How do I, as a single person, find superior satisfaction in something I cannot participate in? And this is mega important. Because remember what I said. Arguing or battling lust comes from a greater satisfaction. And I'm saying that it comes from a satisfaction not just from participating, but even treating, holding, trusting God, that his view of sex is better. So in order to make this argument, I have to answer this question. Why does treating 
sex as God intends bring more satisfaction than less gifts? That's the question. I've put myself in a quandary. I've got to answer this question. So here's my answer. I'm going to unfold it. Lust gives temporary satisfaction, whereas holding to a biblical view of sex, not even participating in it, brings eternal satisfaction. Temporary versus eternal. That's essentially the argument that this father's making in verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the, bo- and embrace the bosom of adulteress? The father's asking, like, with all these joys of sex, why would you go after something less? If I had a $5 bill over here and a $100 bill over here and I told you to choose one, you would be foolish to take the $5 bill. So it is in this case. But you're still asking, what, why is it lesser? Why is treating sex as God intends superior and eternal? And here's the, here's the linchpin. It's not because of something physical. Lust gives physical pleasure. In fact, you could say, physically speaking only, it's the same pleasure as marital intimacy. But the physical pleasure is temporary in both cases. The superior satisfaction comes from biblical sex is eternal, not, not because of something physical, but because of something spiritual. I'll quote another pastor. God created us in his image, male and female, with personhood and sexual desires, so that when he comes to us in the world, there would be these powerful words and images to describe the promises and pleasures of our covenant relationship with him through Christ. Do you see it? Sex is not designed to bring ultimate satisfaction in itself, but because it points to the all-satisfying God. So superior satisfaction comes to those who hold, treat sex as God intends, because it points them to Jesus, who is eternally satisfying. We were made for Christ, the soul-staggering grandeur of Christ. And the more we know Christ, the more we delight in Christ, the more satisfying your sexuality will be, whether married or single. Remember, the sexual intimacy reflected in marriage points to the intimacy in Christ. And because this is objectively taught in Scripture, Hosea, Ezekiel, Ephesians, not subjectively learned through experience, we can trust God's Word as the Spirit applies this truth to our lives. So both those who are married and those who are unmarried find superior satisfaction because... Sex is a pointer, not a substitute for God. It's a pointer, not a substitute. Now, I am not minimizing the struggles and unmet desires some of you face as an unmarried man or unmarried woman. There's a unique advantage for married couples to be able to satisfy God-honoring sexual desires through physical intercourse. That's not something an unmarried person should do. But those who are single do have God-honoring sexual desires. But here's what I'd say. Don't overlook the unique advantage you have. The single person has a unique advantage to magnify the superior satisfaction in Christ that sustains sexual purity and satisfies emotionally. Your brother, sister, unmarried brother, sister, your sexuality says something about Christ that I cannot. Celebrate that. 
See, marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. Singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. Treating sex as God intends, even if you don't participate in it, is a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sex and erotic romance that these things are not ultimate, that Jesus Christ is ultimate. Your immediate sexual desires may not be fulfilled here on earth, but you do not miss out on God's best. You don't. Your sexual desires become a way of deepening your hunger for fuller and deeper satisfaction in Christ, who is God's best. You experience that in part now, in fullness when Christ comes, just like the married person. So for my unmarried brothers and sisters, know, know that having sexual desires is not necessarily wrong. It depends on what you do with those. The message of Proverbs 5 for every one of us, married or unmarried, whether you're here this morning following Christ or you're not a Christian, it's asking you a question. What are you going to do with your sexual desires? Are you going to give in to them and find shallow satisfaction and regret? Or are you going to allow those desires to point you superior satisfaction in Christ? See, Christ has done something far more superior than getting any one of us to the marriage bed and wedding altar. He gave himself completely, not holding anything back, laying down his life, experiencing the pain of the cross that we might have eternal pleasure, the pleasure of a covenant relationship with a risen Savior who will soon return. This can be hard. It can be hard. It's hard inside of marriage and outside. But as we choose Christ, be reminded we're testifying to a greater pleasure, a greater delight. See, our greatest need is not a spouse so we can enjoy the physical pleasures of sex here on earth. Our greatest need is to be reconciled back to God so we can enjoy the eternal pleasures of a Savior. And this is what we have in Christ. Let's let this greater pleasure swallow up lust, little flicker. Proverbs 5 the dangers of lust, and the delights of sex. May we be a church that treats sex as God intends, that we might have a greater pleasure than lust could ever give. Let's pray. Father, we pray. Some of us this morning are convicted. Some of us are hopeless. Some of us are encouraged. Some of us are confused. Wherever we are, Holy Spirit, minister to us. Remind us of the eternal covenant we have in Christ. Remind us that He is enough to satisfy us. And that we might trust in Him and pleasure in him. Do this, we ask. Use us as a church that ministers to each other in the midst of brokenness, that we might enjoy Christ together as we wait for his return. Amen.